Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. We've got a sponsor for you this week. This week's episode is sponsored by Status. Status app lets you chat, browse, and transact on the Ethereum blockchain. Take control of your own private secure messaging, use dApps on mobile, and secure your assets. Download the app today where you get your mobile apps or at statusim slash get. That's statusim slash G-E-T. The Bitcoin podcast will also be in the TBP channel of the Status app to give out a little SMT and let you play around with its features and start chatting privately today. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to another show, Hashing It Out. As always, I am your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, everybody, Colin. What's up, everybody, Colin? Nice. I did it differently than you. I know you don't like that. It's fine. I'll let it slide. I wanted some pizzazz, and there wasn't enough. In the trying times of today's landscape, I'll let it slide. Uh, Today's episode, we have Truman Esmond. Uh, VP of Solutions and Partnerships of AAIS, and there's quite a bit more there. So uh, thank you for coming on the show, Truman. Why don't you start us off with the ordinary, tell us what you do, tell us how you got here, and we'll move on from there. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Corey and Colin. Um, And hello, everybody, on this uh, very interesting day. Uh, So I'm with uh, the American Association of Insurance Insurance Services, uh, shortly shorthanded AAIS, um, very quickly, what AEIS is, is a 90-year-old advisory organization to the insurance space. And we are a not-for-profit member association uh, of, made up of about 750 uh, insurance carriers on the property casualty space. So that's home, auto, uh, business owners, farm owners, uh, and a lot of other coverages like cargo and things like that that can be very interesting uh, as it, as it, uh, in our conversation. But we're uh, this 90-year-old organization, and we have three major jobs. And the first one is being a stat agent. The second one is a rating bureau. And the third one is an advisory organization. Let me explain those very quickly. Uh, As a stat agent, we collect data from the insurance carrier members, summarize it, aggregate it, and and report it as an intermediary to the state regulators. Insurance is a state-based regulatory uh, ecosystem. We take that data, summarize it, aggregate it, report it up to the regulators so that they can get an understanding of what's happening with insurance coverages in their jurisdictions. Um, typically, that's down to the zip code level. So they get an idea of what's, uh, what trends are in coverage, uh, typically around things like fire and, and uh, water damage and things like that. Um, that's the, the statistical agent part of it, and that is a licensed function that we provide your auditable subject to audit uh, by the regulatory body. Uh, the second part is we are a rating bureau. So we take that data that we use to report to regulators and get a little bit more and we reflect that data back to the industry in the form of standard loss costs. So that helps regulators as well as the industry understand trends uh, at, a, again, at a zip code level for different types of coverages, fire, flood, uh, things like that, uh, for, for losses as well as coverage activities. So as new coverages uh, come available, uh, that reporting helps them understand how well the market is meeting those needs. The third thing we do, that's the, uh, the rating bureau. The third thing we do is an advisory organization. We actually create standard insurance contracts, policies, uh, form language, the underwriting manuals that determine exclusions and inclusions for types of coverages and, and uh, the market space. And we file those with the different states as, as vanilla sorts of insurance programs that our members can then use. Uh, when they don't, particularly if they don't have experience in that product or in that uh, in that jurisdiction. So, all those things together makes us the data-driven mechanism for the the way the property casualty insurance industry moves and changes over time in a nice data-driven way, and how the regulators are involved um, to put in making sure that they understand what's happening in the industry. Uh, personally, uh, my background is I've been in technology and uh, marketing and a variety of different things over the last 25 years. Um, building network solutions uh, in a variety of different industries. Uh, joined AAIS about seven and a half years ago um, as part of a um, really massive transformation of the organization 
of this amendment, you know, at the time was about 80 years old, um, very traditional advisory organization or, or insurance organization, everything that you would expect. Um, we are now a, a much different organization taking that purpose and applying modern technology and uh, um, really disintermediating ourselves from that role in order for the industry to benefit and for, and for, our, for AIS to be able to do our jobs around the uh, value to the industry in a much better way. So I think the obvious question here from from uh, from that introduction, which is which, which was thank you for that very extensive, is why the hell are you on the show? Um, why are we talking right. to you in regards to uh, a show that talks about technical aspects of decentralization technology? What what's going on there? But so we were in in performing this role when I joined AIS. We really were looking to how we can do our job better and looking at this organization and our function, how we would. Uh, if we could, you know, knowing what we know, how would we do it again? How would we do it differently? Uh, you know, the, the process that we use to do that reporting function is very uh, old school, if you will. In fact, we still have six states that receive that data we provide and aggregate and provide them uh, in paper. So that's a very inefficient process and ter not terribly useful. And the regulators are doing a different process to change that. So we needed a way to, to allow the industry to work differently around data, uh, and it had to be a different sort of data strategy. And when blockchain as a technology matured, particularly in the enterprise space, uh, we realized that this is the, the hammer we've been looking for. So we weren't, you know, kind of looking at it from a technology forward position. We were looking at it from a business solution that we, that required the promise of, of blockchain as it matured, uh, data privacy, trusted connect connections, trusted transactions, immutable ledgers, all those sorts of things. So, um, when we it, when we were exploring this for a few years and Hyperledger matured enough, um, we we needed that sort of a platform. This is an enterprise space as opposed to a truly public space. It's open in that everybody can participate, um, but it is a enterprise space in that there's closed borders, even as a uh, uh, you know as a regulated body of a country or an industry or a uh, uh, you know at least an, a non-anonymous uh, community. Um, and then, and, and even more, and importantly, a, a community of communities. Each ones are going to make different rules, and this is not one that drives uh, drives outward, but it kind of supports everything. One of the things I say, and I know Colin, you heard me say this, is that um, insurance doesn't drive anything, but it supports everything. Um, and when insurance doesn't work, it's not available. We get delays in delivery of new technology, like Uber takes years to get to the ground and get a general adoption. Uh, when it's unclear who takes care of the passenger in the event of an accident or those sorts of things. So when, when uh, Hyperledger matured enough, um, that was exactly the model we wanted to follow. We're very, a very big believer in the open source and community-driven standard for uh, strategic platforms, for trusted platforms across different communities, very much you know, in the Linux Foundation uh, and the Internet Engineering Task Force, uh, where, where my boss uh, came out of. Uh, so we're very much in the uh, the open source world so we were looking for a platform like that uh, in order to allow all of our members to participate uh, given that we've got not only some of the largest insurance companies but some of the very smallest ones as well that have you know uh, very small often you know, six figure or less uh, operating budgets uh, so it needs to be very very inclusive so uh, we were looking for a solution like that and we so we created a technology a blockchain driven platform leveraging hyperledger that would allow our members uh, to basically keep control of their data and participate in regulatory reporting in such a way that didn't require the implicit trust in AIS as the steward of that data. So they would keep their data locally in their peer node. We would have a trusted interaction with that data that would basically allow us to make a query of that data and we could take the information resulting from that query, summarize it, aggregate it, and report it up to regulators because that data is in that peer in a trusted fashion. We know how it got there, we know what the standard is, and we know how far we can trust it because of the assertions of the, um, of the insurance carrier who put it there, um, which is the, the level of trust we need for this regulatory reporting use case. We were able to streamline that and, and basically automate ourselves out of that process, but also give us a way to expand that process, make it faster, make it more valuable both to the participants uh, as well as to the, to the regulators and really to society. So that led us to create the Open IDL or Open Insurance Data Link. I also say it's the Open Individual Data Link or the Open Industry Data Link. Uh, and, and as a basically a data privacy platform, um, I say, and Colin, you're going to say it again as well, when we first met, that I think we solve data privacy 
only in this place first for uh, insurance regulatory reporting and PNC, but the model and the architecture uh, that leverages a enterprise blockchain technology at its core allows for a community, in this case, PNC carriers for a regulatory purpose to consolidate, agree on rules and have that transaction of regulatory reporting be far more streamlined and far more useful when we now have a trusted data stream of policy and claim experience, um, which is all the stuff that we have, you know, our house, our phone, our car, our travel, our um, media publishers, um, all have insurance policies and those are all part of the data stream that we have. So the, where I think it becomes important is when now that we've got these physical assets tied to financial assets, insurance, risk, we can then leverage that community of known pool of assets and then start to bring different sorts of interaction patterns, if you will, or, or, or different types of uh, community relationships across that pattern according and get some agreed upon rules. Um, our challenge has been looking at from the trying to boil the ocean, I think, looking at it from what's the biggest possible impact we can make, as opposed to looking at where we can get some real traction um, in, again, specifically regulatory world. Long answer again, sorry. No, that was great. That was great. Okay, so uh, let's let's break this down. So to an audience that can understand the effects of what you're saying, if not necessarily understand the business side of what you're saying. And when you talk to me, you, you, you had some really cool um, direct applications for what you've just built. The whole uh, data privacy side of things, as well as the fact that you can kind of share in these uh, federated, like, um, you know, uh, communication channels that enable you to sort mm -hmm. of like get these sort of like anonymized high level pictures of what's going on and what risk means from an insurance standpoint. Some of the things you talked about was automatically doing spot insurance for like while you're driving. So I was wondering if maybe you could give yeah. us, give some real concrete examples to ground what you just said in the vision of the reality you're trying to build. Yeah, thanks. And that's a lot of, there's, there's literally a million different applications we can provide. And, and there's a lot, and a lot of them come down to the, the empathy with the, with the stakeholder that we're talking about. So one of the ones in, that I, that I mention a lot, um, living in Colorado, I, I drive a Jeep, I like to go four-wheeling. Um, I am insured by State Farm uh, when I'm on the highway. Um, and, you know, and if I do something to my car while I'm four-wheeling, um, you know, I, I may be able to get it paid for, but I've got to be able to get it back to the road, uh, things like that. And they certainly aren't going to pay to recover me if I roll it down a hill, for example, uh, off the, on a trail. What we can start to do in terms of insurance products, once we have that sort of trusted information in a in a private way so all that information that's being gathered about me while i'm driving my location even things that are very detailed like where my eyes are looking uh, so that it can rumble my seat and say hey look at the road um that information is being captured on my phone and the car and all that and and and, and we want it to be private and only used for very specific purposes so eye looking example is a very good one where were your eyes looking it's fine okay to use it for to rumble my seat but I definitely don't want that data to be accessed after an accident, especially you know, if it wasn't my fault, but if that data shows my eyes weren't looking there, regardless of whose fault it was, uh, State Farm is gonna be paying for that, uh, for that claim. If, they can, they, if that data is, say, subpoenable and can be brought to court and demonstrate that I wasn't looking when that accident happened. But in terms of the benefits, we've gotta protect it. We require data privacy. In that simple example of going four-wheeling, my location is private, but my policy information is known. My driving history is known. What kind of car I have is known. And State Farm may choose to <clears throat> offer a, uh, an add-on coverage for uh, recreational vehicles, offer driving, camping, things like that, that would activate or give me an offer when my location interacts with a, uh, you know, is proximity to a, uh, a trailhead, for example, which obviously is available from Google Maps or something like that. Uh, I could say, look, you left the highway, you are um, within 100 feet of the trailhead of this three-star trail, trigger the offer. State Farm doesn't have any idea where I am, but they know that based on my car, my year, my experience, my anything else, uh, and my proximity to this three-star trailhead using a source that they trust, you know, Jeep Tours, USA, whatever, um, they give me a rate for here's 24 hours of 
uh, scratch and dent coverage and, you know, emergency recovery. And if you do something too bad, maybe you get a rental daily driver. So for 150 bucks, you have a hundred, you have an offer of 24 hours of off-road coverage. I say, yes, I'd like that. I drive a hundred feet in order to activate that coverage. So, cause I, I can't buy it after I've rolled it down the hill, for example. Uh, and says, great, your coverage is activated. Maybe take a picture of my car at that point. Um, and, and off I go. And then, from there, it, it can maybe offer different things if I travel out of a radius or if I've left the trail, if there's GPS available, or I could just say, yep, see you in 24 hours, uh, or put the button when the coverage is done. When you're back on the highway, you're done with your trip. Those are the kind of things that could be available, um, but there's, a, there's literally you know, thousands of different potential interactions. Um, as chair of the Applications uh, uh, Governance Committee for Open IDL, my job in that in that group is to explore the potential applications of this privacy technology and architecture uh, and building upon those policies and claims uh, data streams that we have for different both you know novel insurance applications as well as applications across industry and, and new uh, you know new new ways that that could be used and applied not only in the uh, you know, in, in even the Hyperledger fabric technology, which is what we're using today, but taking that same uh, data architecture and applying it in things like Sawtooth uh, to allow more for that case I, I described, where you've actually got a node participating on a phone or on a, on a watch or inside of a vehicle um, in, a, uh, in a more disconnected way, allowing for that tr those trusted interactions and keeping the data privacy closer to the edge of the, of the application. I have... Listening to that just has my wheels spinning in a myriad of ways, um, mostly right. <laughs> towards mostly towards the um, what strong guarantees you have around the privacy model that like the underlying like fundamental technology is giving you, and what you can extract mm -hmm. from there based on like reasonable risk assessments because in order to have any type of like uh claim being offered up you need pretty strong guarantees around the associated risk uh so yep. that you can make way decisions especially automatically because this is potential to be massively scaled which needs to be automated like mm -hmm. how are you going to like what guarantees do you have based on how the privacy actually works under the hood can you talk a little bit about that Absolutely. So that, that's really the key thing to understand is, is trust. And trust is different than, than faith, right? It's not binary. and It definitely requires context. So what we're, you know, when you talk about the guarantee, it's like you, know, you guarantee this, you know, this process this far. And one of the quotes I use that uh, my wife definitely doesn't like from Charlie Sheen and Navy Seals, you know, trust me, it's your life, not your money or your wife. You know, there's a there's a definite distance of how far trust can be explained. It can be a very implicit and deep level of trust, but only in a context, right? Not in a casino, not somewhere else, but on the battlefield in a foxhole, right? For example, um, same sort of thing that we're talking about here in this context. That data that's being used in this case, our first use case, the data is in the system with an attestation, if you will, by the data provider. In this case, it's a it's a yep. I say this is what it is for the purpose of regulatory reporting, right? That, that is a fairly low bar of trust, right? It's something they're compelled to do. So, uh, and, it, and the penalty for not doing it right is fines. I mean, if you're really flagrantly not reporting, then maybe you get an audit or something like that. But the, the, um, it's not, to use your case, you know, taking a trusted binary piece of data and paying a $500,000 house claim on it or a million dollar liability claim on it. Those are much different levels of trust. And, but when we've got the data stream, and, and to, to the regulatory reporting example, the amount regulators trust that data they're getting today when it's only being used and only being served to them in that one context, they've got to take it with a grain of salt, right? They don't have any, that is an extract of a system that is uh, you know, closed to them unless they uh, you know, call for an audit, which they don't want to do. They're very expensive, it's very intrusive. Um, and certainly we're trying, that's one of the things we're hoping to uh, streamline, you know, so that instead of managing and enforcing by audit, they're managing and enforcing by dashboards and clearer guidelines. So we're hoping for a much better regulatory environment in the future. Um, but the, the privacy and the guarantee of that is in the context of, it, it, first of all, the, the guarantee is really provided by the data owner, right? The idea is putting the control back in the hands of the data owner, in this case, is the insurance carrier. 
they're receiving, you know, they're, they're selling policies and, and getting claim information. And their node is completely in their control. It is in their cloud environment, it is in their basement, it is in where, you know, on a server that they control on their own hardware, whatever they want to use it. Our platform leverages in Kubernetes and, and OpenShift so that it is very componentized um, and can and create a trusted um, system on that peer of the uh, different packages uh, or containers that are that are linked together in a, in, a, in a trusted way, as well as the code that runs on it. So they can deploy that wherever they like. They obviously are still protecting their data um, in, in their own world. So if they get hacked, if you will, um, you know, then that that node may be at risk, but there's a lot, there's a, that that's a pretty deep uh, piece. And the data that should be resident there, at least for the purposes of regulatory reporting, isn't that private. It doesn't have names, doesn't have addresses, uh, at least today. Um, it's down to the zip code level. It's not endorsement level. So it doesn't know, for example, when um, the, you know, the exact moment that a, uh, a coverage existed or something changed in the policy, you know, um, whatever it happened to be. So it's not at that level um, of detail. But once the platform is trusted and people and companies can start to put more detailed data into their trusted peer, allowing it to be interacted with, you know, on a very permission basis, right? So they don't have to give their data to anybody. They put their data into their peer in a trust, in a um, standardized schema. We call the harmonized data store. It's the first of the uh, patents we, we've had with IBM um, that leverages a very specific standard that, that AAIS as the regulatory reporting intermediary defines and is, and is going to be open source. Um, that schema and the rules for data coming into that harmonized data store are, are defined and known companies can put data in there according to that schema. And then as interactions with that data are requested, and this is the second of our patents with IBM, is that the um, regulators create, okay, I want a data call. I want to know how many, as a commissioner from Nebraska, uh, North Dakota the other day said, I want to know how many uh, home daycare policies are out there, what, you know, and some information about them. That's a changing risk in our state. We need to have more up-to-date information about what's happening with home daycare, these the insurance industry. So they would craft a question uh, and increasingly working to, with, to empathize with the industry about what the right question is that will actually add value, why they're asking it so that the carriers are more likely to participate. They draft that, post it to the audience. The, the audience of carriers says, okay, I would be willing to do that. Once they get you know, enough um, agreement, I don't want to say consensus because I would say it means something very different in our world. <laughs> Once yeah. they get enough likes in this case, the, uh, uh, the regulator says, okay, I'll issue this data call then it's issued formally. Um, and at that point, what we call the interaction pattern or the extraction pattern is that, that patent element is basically the query of how the, specifically how your data will be touched in the context of this question the regulator asks, right? So it's code level. It's the middle part of the smart contract, if you will, that allows the carrier to know exactly how their data is going to be interacted with. And that will run that when that query, that interaction pattern runs, According to the rules, is it happening at midnight on January, you know, 1201 January 1st? Is it happening every day? Is it um, happening as soon as I click OK? Um, how that works, and that's what's going to happen, that, that query, if you will, run against my data, the answer, the response to that query will be delivered upstream to the aggregation point. In this case, uh, AIS as the intermediary um, operating the basically intermediary node uh, to pass that data up to the regulators. So, the data itself isn't identifiable to AIS. We know that this particular carrier has participated. They have both. We know they've consented to the data call. Um, again, not consensus, but they said yes. I will agree to participate. We know when the data call fires um, that you know the data it, it executes successfully, and we know when data moves up. But we can't. We never see the raw data as AIS. We never. We can't identify what data comes from which carrier. So the privacy is maintained from a fundamental structural standpoint um, and their security is maintained because they can always not participate in the data call. And if they, and if nobody participates, the regulator can basically force it, but we're trying to get away from uh, more of a fo force and actually understand that these two communities, the insurance carriers and the regulators have a common interest of a, uh, you know, a, a flexible, resilient, uh, you know, more increasingly fluid insurance market for everybody involved. I think that answered the question. Oh, yeah. so <laughs> you mentioned a patent that you guys had, the harmonized data store. Mm -hmm. That sounds that's great marketing right there. That's good. That's that's a good yeah, marketing. Right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> can, you, can you describe that patent in in uh, a little more detail? Um, exactly how that works and what 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 you guys are uh, why this is a novel uh, invention and you know how you're utilizing it. Yeah. So it's it's you know uh, it's not rocket science, uh, but it is an application of an idea of data abstraction, something that's very old uh, or uh, you know very common in, in the IT and, and system development. But, but what it does is a, is a couple of different things. One, as I mentioned, the, the common schema, which is not just a, a database schema, but also the rules of ingestion around that data. So how the data lands in the harmonized data store, that is a standard. And obviously, there's going to be multiple standards that are defined by the different communities that will, that, uh, that will, that will govern that. So we're not in the business of telling auto manufacturers how they need to capture telematics data on their, on their hardware, right? They're going to figure that out. So a standard like Mobi would would be uh, adopted into the general framework as a way the data to be stored into a database. Say we use uh, for our purposes, uh, and again because it's componentized, the harmonized data store, the execution of it, how that is applied, could be in any number of different data stores. We use MongoDB today um, for for broad application. It's unstructured data, so that it can be highly flexible, and it's not an analytical use case at the point of uh, capture, if you will, while it's resident in the harmonized data store. So um, we take that, that harmonized data that exists in Mongo, and that's in, in, in our particular case, uh, and that's the trusted data store. We know how it got there. We know all the, the inputs have been credentialed. It's met our quality rules. It's been um, gone through the ETL process in order to be uh, you know, resident in the harmonized data store in a, in a trusted schema and a trusted, in a, in a level of trust. I mean, some of the things that we'll start to talk about are things like uh, trust scores. You know, was that data observed by human being and typed in manually? Was it uh, observed by trusted hardware um, and, and captured in a more, you know, uh, objective way, for example? Yeah, and, and then so you call it, you said ETL, but like this is basically ETL at scale and with arbitrary data, it sounds like. Uh, and just increasingly, also, yeah. yeah, it's essentially ETL, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's very cool. Except yeah. you built a schema in front of it, so people can do create their own standards and perform the ETL operation in a way where they can join and unjoin a network and still be able to, you know, handle the ETL from any data source that's supported by that particular network. Now, are these Correct. harmonized? Are these schemas? Oh, by the way. Harmonized is kind of a strange word. I was maybe maybe you can like explain to me why you called it that. Because the um, each data store that is resident in each insurance company in our in our first use cases node is singing from the same music, right? You know, they're 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 while they may have one policy and one claim or zero and zero, you know, or or millions, the structure of that data, the rules by which that data changes and is updated, the smart contracts that update that data uh, is consistent across rules. So, you know, because of that standard, the harmony across those data stores allows the trusted interactions without having to share the trusted, the, the private data. Whereas if you don't have that standard and agreed upon rules by, the, you know, the, the data has got to be so good in order to ride, ride this ride, without that agreement, you you have to share the raw data, and even then, it doesn't give you any sense of uh, the the provenance or the or where that data originated without again sharing more and more data, more and more data, more and more exposure, which is just really really weighty. Um, and a lot of the other platforms um, kind of reinforce that complexity. I mean, it, you need to do that today. You know, for example, if you don't have a standard, you can put your data in a in an uh, an Azure ledger database essentially or an AWS ledger database. But without the standard, you have no assertion of quality. You can just say it hasn't changed. Well, but if it's, you know, if it was bad when it went in, I mean, again, how far can you trust it? And that's really the question that we're trying to define. So the, the harmonization is, again, a question of how far you trust. We can all sing in this key really well. <laughs> but you try and change it, it's not, it may not be the right application. And the one thing that's in where the, the blockchain piece comes in, and I don't think I mentioned it yet, is that as the data is loaded into that harmonized data store, let's say it's a, a day's worth of policies and claims transactions, the evidence of that data, that one day's cube, whether zero transactions or a thousand transactions, um, is loaded into the harmonized data store. Evidence of that cube is shared on in the Hyperledger fabric world on a channel, a ledger, um, in this case with AIS. So we just have evidence 
that the that a day went by. Um, so we have evidence of, uh, you know, no day, no policies happened that day or no claims happened that day. Or we have evidence when we go back to ask the, um, the query of that data later uh, that the, the data has its integrity. That hash is extremely lightweight. It's not a uh, it's an identity hash. It's not a it's not something that could be reverse engineered back to the data. Um, so it, it gives us that uh, that that evidence chain um, without the need to continually copy data as it moves across the streams. Um, and because we have those evidence streams, as when we do the second part, the extraction patterns, that extraction pattern creates a second cube of metadata, you know, interpreted data on top of that raw data set averages, totals, counts, things like that. Um, that secondary cube is also hashed and shared with, as evidence, again, for its integrity. And then using, a, again, an open source, you know, what they call the private data collections in, inside the Hyperledger fabric, that information is moved, that subset, that metadata, is aggregated to AIS in this case, um, from all the different peers um, into different, you know, private data collections on our side and, and aggregated basically in a lights out sort of fashion. And then once the data is moved, the intermediate points, um, which is a new feature in Hyperledger, those, those uh, private data collections can be destroyed. So we have an evidence of successful transaction, but we can get rid of all the intermediate weight uh, at each point because we only care about, for example, the first quarter of 2020 data uh, until we get second quarter numbers. <laughs> Just to like reiterate on that, if I if I'm trying to I'm trying to understand this correctly, um, you've created a way in which people can attest to standardized types of transactions um, that are then subsequently auditable. So the blockchain piece of this mm -hmm. is attestations of of behavior, which is then auditable. Uh, those attestations don't show anything about the information, but when you would like to you know query it you can provide the information right. and a proof that it happened at any given attestation. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. So you can so you know what question was asked against what data that was true at the time. And we know that it worked that time. Now, you know, we can, we can verify that it worked correctly at that time. But of course, when we talk about things like GDPR uh, yep. and, and information, the underlying data can obviously change. So if I was to run that data call, you know, for the month of January today, you know, and it's some historical information, right? What happened in January and whatever. And then I run it again tomorrow on that same time period, I may get a different answer, even though both, you know, both were answered truthfully, if you will, right? So we've got multiple versions of the truth because the underlying context changes and we need to be able to understand that. So this has all kinds of fun applications when we start talking about things like AI, um, stuff like that. So we, those things need to be, those types of tools and data sources both need to be networked, flexible and accountable. Um, and, and objectives. So this is where we start to do some really fun sorts of applications that are uh, more infrastructure, which is definitely where we're going. And I, and I so, imagine um, that's why you chose Hyperledger in this context is so you have that, I don't want to call it mutability, but ability to pivot based on context as opposed to always yeah. having specific uh, data locked in some data store that's then agreed upon, like, like open systems like Ethereum or Bitcoin. Exactly. It, it's very flexible. You know, it's community driven. You know, we're, we're starting from one point in a general framework and see how, how far we can ride this unicycle uh, before we need to put another tire on it. Um, you know, and, and that's really the exciting point. But the key, you know, in, in, in Hyperledge, there's a lot of reasons we went with that uh, with so many of the community projects that are out there. Um, you know, that you know, by having this on a peer, this policy and claim information on a Hyperledger peer, that gives you the ability to interact with you know 400 potential other networks, all kinds of cargo networks, all kinds of other emerging networks in the hyperledger community. And if you look at them that are out there, you know all of them are looking, you know, or a lot of them seem to be looking for traction. And we're talking with a variety of them to help them get there because we start to bring them into the real, you know, into a regulated framework. You know, you know, as we talked about before, the um, you know, much like the financial community, the insurance community is a regulated framework and it's not going to allow itself to be disrupted. You know, now is it moving too slow? Yes, <laughs> but you know, but it's, uh, it's still got to be the, the, the stable and, oh, and trusted ecosystem that, that we need. Yeah. I worked with industrial control systems for a while and that, that if you want, if you want to know slow, that's slow. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we laugh. We're, we're, uh, we talk about in being in a race of turtles between insurance carriers and regulators, and we're just screaming at them on the sidelines <laughs> to, to try and go faster. Um, the regulators seem to be winning, for the record. Uh, the nice thing is that you can take two weeks off and go on vacation and come back, and they're still in the same place, more or less. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we've been at this a couple of years now. Um, it'll be two years in the spring. Um, and uh, we've... You know, we're, we've got traction and, and broad interest and participation from some of the largest carriers in the country, from uh, state regulators. We're in a, in a pilot right now with North Dakota. That'll be our first real, uh, you know, regulator-issued data call on the platform um, for North Dakota homeowners. Um, it's not, you know, terribly exciting market. Obviously, it's North Dakota, not you know, you know, not uh, not millions and millions of homes up there. But the commissioner is the uh, chair of the innovation and technology task force at the national association of insurance commissioners so basically it's the federal assembly of all the different insurance commissioners of our state-based insurance market and he helps lead the innovation and technology that those commissioners and regulatory bodies can adopt so we're we're getting some traction these insurance commissioners are also insurance commissioners for life and health um, and are typically in in the division of finance and um you know, definitely regulatory affairs, uh, but financial regula- regulation in those states. So we start to get to a pretty quick overlap of where all these things start to touch. Right on. So I, I got a question. So you're, 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 this is actually a lot of traction for a, you know, uh, a decentralized sort of project right now. Um, and that's, that's good to see. Um, even though it's not kind of in the space we typically focus on, which are more open protocols, um, it's really nice to see that same language, that same behavior, that same concept of being able to um, join and unjoin uh, to bring more uh, custom tailored, uh, you know, self-sovereign data control to individuals is, is good. Um, yep. So I like that. Uh, how are you actually doing this proof of concept, though? Because my experience in the past has been if you are going to show somebody at that high level something, they need to get it within the first 10 to 15 minutes or they are gone. And um, you must have some pretty good proof of concepts and demo workers to to actually get them hooked onto the idea and engaged in the process. Mm -hmm. What have you guys been building to actually show this off? So it's it's it works now. The technology was ironically kind of the easy part of it. The harder part is getting people to to listen, spend time, understand, and and build the empathy across the stakeholders. So, um, we, you know, the technology, like I said, it was we were able to build that and able to solve through two major releases. The first one we we built obviously experienced a lot of challenges. We learned quite a bit in round one, and then uh, in January of last year, we released what is our long-term architecture on the on the on the Hyperledger Fabric framework. So that and that's where we're moving forward. So at that point, the technology was largely solved. Uh, and then it was getting the the humans to to figure it out. Everything we have done has been leveraging design thinking and bringing the stakeholders into a room uh, to help them understand their problems and get to a point of where we can agree and how far are we able to trust each other. Where where do our common interests extend and when do they diverge? And that's really been the critical piece to getting the uh, the understanding and the, and the and the different constituencies together uh, to to do that part and that's the it's been working ever since we've had working proof of concepts working technology we can pop open the hood uh, and show you exactly how it works how the data is kept private um i'll you know a little plug if you go to uh, aisonline.com slash open idl dash industry dash test dash drive uh just put in your email there's a series of videos and very specifically the i think the middle three goes through the architecture in great detail goes through the actually how to stand up a node. And then the third one actually goes through the, um, the data call, the data experience, how the data is moved, kept private, and ultimately reported back out to the, um, to the regulators. So the technology has been working and been mature, if you will, and stable for, for over a year. Um, the, but in order to make it work, put it in production, um, it needs real data to be brought into the system from the carriers um, which is obviously a, uh, a sensitive process in and of itself um, because we're talking about blockchain, because we're talking about very large carriers, because we're talking about um, all these different things, including the relationship that AIS has, we wind up needing to get approval or, or at least understanding and, a, and an okay, let's take you know a, a little tiny step forward 
across the entire C-suite of a company, um, you know, data, innovation, technology, underwriting, compliance, finance, um, all those different areas of the organization need to be involved because we're talking blockchain. You know, there's going to be some level of media attention, so everybody's got to be able to answer a few basic questions, um, which takes some work. And then we get then we get them to agree to a pilot with all the understandings and data contracts that we need to have. Even though we never see the data, this is a foreign concept, right? Today's con- contracts and data agreements don't work like that. They don't assume I get to keep my data and you get to use it, right? They assume you're taking it. So it's it's a it's a different sort of agreement and getting some folks to understand that is very challenging. New sorts of contracts and agreements across the parties. And then of course the regulatory side. We literally in some cases have to get um, laws changed in order for regulators to accept data in a different way or uh, you know make different sorts of policies. And you know and for those of us that you know speak in an agile world it's a lot easier to create effective policy if you know why you're doing it and you say that instead of saying turn left, turn right, you know, and being much more instructive or enforcement based or letting folks go a particular direction and then slamming the door on them once they're down there. So it's much better to say, hey, we want you to, as regulators, stay inside this, uh, uh, these guardrails, if you will, of doing insurance in my state of you know your concentration of risk of your your pricing ins and outs your claim payment ratios as long as you stay in here you're cool and if we that data that they can see is trusted they'll be less subject to audit they'll be able to get more uh allowed to be more innovative in their space you know doing more of those types of innovative products that leverage my personal information without putting me at risk you know so let's talk about my private data yeah personal information um, mm-hmm. Clearly, you've, you've said you said uh, a couple times like we're, we, you know, I am an operator, and they could add things. If, for instance, check my attentiveness while I'm driving. Did my eyes steer off, yep. off the road or something like that? Um, yep. It's creepy. Um, it is. It, it's creepy, it, but it doesn't have to be creepy. It's just when we when we think about it, we go, okay, right. So how? I, maybe I missed this in something you said, but how are we actually? gatekeeping and siloing personal data from the rest of the world without like, am I encrypting this data? It's like, talk to me as, as, as the engineer that I, you know, background that I have, Mm -hmm. I'm in a Mm -hmm. car, they're tracking the state. It's a a data stream. Okay. It's a data stream uh, going out. Um, I'm deciding to either report it in batch or I'm, I'm actually streaming the data live uh, using 5g or whatever. Um, Drive down the road, you can watch my attentiveness. How are you actually making sure that somebody can't view or unlock that data or monitor the stream? Like, how do I know the NSA isn't monitoring my stream as I'm driving down the road? Like, is the, are mm-hmm. these things we can protect against, or is that a, a, an irrational fear? Or how are you dealing Not with this? Not at all. The, again, the question is how much you trust that particular thing, because what you're dealing with, when even when you're driving a car, you're actually participating in any number of communities of data, right? You know, the car you're driving, like drive a Jeep. Jeep has got a series of data networks that are monitoring everything from my brake system to the fuel line system to the air conditioning system and all those things are basically little networks. When we, when depending on what you're trying to do as you're driving your car, before we even talk about it going upstream and into broader things, you're going to have trusted networks in your car that will allow me, for example, to go from the 65 mile an hour fast lane where State Farm is my insurer to the 110 mile an hour super fast AV lane, which cars are six inches apart and they are aware of each other, they are aware of the road and they have met a very high threshold of, of function, right? You know, that the, the brake system is intact, the, the fuel line system is intact, There's, it's not overweight, it's not, doesn't have a weird drag coefficient, uh, all the sensors are working properly. That's gonna have to be trusted at a very high level. Just in that community within the car, among the car, the, the different community of the cars among each other, the different community of the car talking to the road, you know, those are all three different things. Before you've even, you know, gone into a broader network of, of using, you know, 5G to take some information and, and have a broader understanding of am I looking at the road if I'm a commercial driver uh, to rate my performance as, a, as an employee, you know, more broadly. But so that, so that data control winds up being happening at a very granular level all the way down to what's on my watch or, um, again, what's happening inside that car. 
and to the degree that that data is being you know sniffed or swept up by something beyond that then it's a question of how 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 much integrity that local system is that is providing the raw control of that data how it lives how it's brought in where it's where it's where it's stored how it's stored and when it's destroyed and then more then to the degree that there's another smart contract that takes some of that data and sends it upstream how granular that data can be very can be trusted to a very high degree because we've got you know if you will signatures of all the different components that make up the brake system that makes up the engine system and, and jeep has very tightly controlled those supply chains um i would look at a company uh, uh, uh borsetta.io um leveraging we need to have trusted hardware right you've heard about the the, the chips coming back from from china with uh, freeloaders on there that are doing not quite sure what um compromising our, our future 5g networks among other things you can make chipsets that that have integrity that can that can even though they're in the field we can trust they are what they are we know if they've been compromised so that we can trust their data and we can start to get to six sigma levels of of, of data accuracy and reporting at that level and we need that because if my car goes into the fast lane and i'm using crappy brake parts or i did my own brake job at my in my own garage I don't get to go 110 miles an hour because if my car doesn't stop according to the specifications, I can take out 20 cars, not just my own self. So the when you get into that point, again, it's, what happens is now what we did with the internet was created a, a very huge pipes of data with very little uh, boundaries within them until you get into very proprietary sorts of networks. What we're seeking to do now is develop trusted conduits for a particular purpose with much more efficient because we know about it you know uses of data much more efficient um interactions because those interactions are trusted and consistent and and verifiable so the we'll be doing a lot of the same thing but the where it's not a question of faith it's a question of trust and that trust has context very very specific context so as a user from the user experience perspective Am I, go, am, I, am I going to be able to verify my own trusted context? Like, yes, I trust my car until the moment I find out that my car has been exploited or, you know, somebody right. came up and literally like because my car is mobile and I don't have control over physical access to any degree by any, any, any sort of uh, typical security standard. I have no physical control, uh, physical security on my car. That's kind of by definition of the, yep. of the way the vehicle is. Um, somebody could easily tamper and and you know just do this regularly with with vehicles. They could even remotely do it without even touching the vehicle. Um, yeah, you know, the thing, I, so the thing I want to do like, is make my car look like an ambulance. <laughs> so if we, when this system, when we're all autonomous vehicles and cars are aware of each other, my you know my my hacker brain says, all right, how do I make all the cars around me think I'm an ambulance and get out of my there? Way? You go. Yeah. <laughs> right. So thinking of that sort of thing helps us like how to, how can that be prevented? You know, hopefully I'm ahead of myself, right? <laughs> that is an incredible, by the way. That it's I had no idea what you, when you first said ambulance. I'm like, uh, okay, let's see where it goes with this. Now, that is actually an incredible example of what I'm talking about. Because yes, if you have an automated car system and you have automated, yeah, like uh, whatever, like being able to spoof the type of vehicle you are is 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 also is a potentially transparent and um, and personally beneficial way of um, manipulating uh, your life is, is a practical life well, that's hack what, almost. That's what he was saying right. in terms of you that's need that saying. contextual trust. You, you got to have well, that the right. all and, the way down. You no, know, and maybe I'm the fire chief, right? And I'm driving my station wagon, right? You know, I'm the fire chief and I get a call. I need to be able to flip something that asserts I am who I am, even though I'm driving my, my, my family truckster, I need to be urgent. So I need all of a sudden everybody else to recognize that not only am I an emergency vehicle, but I'm an emergency vehicle on a way now, right? Yeah. Maybe they didn't know I was an emergency vehicle before, but now I am. So, I mean, but the context, I guess you're saying is, is literally a kind of fingerprint of the vehicle itself. If any one of those pieces changes, the whole kind of thing breaks down. Is that what I'm misunderstanding here? Uh, um, it's a hierarchy, right? So there's, there's that the brake system is one thing, right? And they, you know, as Jeep, they say, okay, this is the, my trusted suppliers. It's going to be trusted for certain things. The air conditioning system may not care, right? You know, we may not need as much trust in the air conditioning system to get in the AV lane as we do in the brake system or the, uh, you know, engine performance, right? We don't want it to be, you know, you know, 2,000 miles over on an oil change going 110 miles an hour. That could be bad, right? 
But what I'm seeing then is basically each part, each kind of like major critical part is its own serialized number, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so if yeah. we were to build some sort of like, you could create essentially a Merkle root all the way up to the top that represents your vehicle. And if any one of those parts changes, there has to be a register change in the, in the global system, as well as a, uh, that your Merkle root might, you know, you, you are changing uh, this Correct. part. And if that doesn't match, then you have uh, basically an invalid vehicle. So let's say you right. wanted to say you this put the siren comes in. and it enables you to sort of like have the, the lights go. And so people would be aware that, hey, I'm in ambulance mode right now. But if your car doesn't possess the ambulance mode, that breaks the whole security the the whole the yeah. whole validation check of your car your car itself loses its own validation and the rest of the cars around you go hey that's an invalid vehicle which of course flags you and, and potentially can bring you down without having to know anything that's inside of your vehicle they don't have to know a damn so, thing no exactly and this is where i start talking you know when we when bringing it back to kind of the you know the bitcoin concept and ethereum which i know you guys talk a lot about this is where the what I, what I kind of call microcurrencies and these private currencies start to exist, right? The, the, the ticket to ride in the AV lane will be a result of my having a token that allows me to join, having all those other things that are, that are true according to other trusted and increasingly private networks, Jeep's brake system as opposed to all brake systems, you know, and, and how that works relative to the question is you can go on this AV lane if your brake system works, you're, you're getting you know, all these other things are true, you get a gold coin and now you can join the AV lane, you know, or now you can identify yourself as an emergency vehicle or do all these different things. And those will all be different types of, of, you know, of, of, of you know, non-human currencies, if you will, non-monetary currencies that will be attributed to specific value. And a lot of these, a lot of the stuff is, is trying to build solutions based on, um, the, like the aggregate questions of what can I prove and then what can I build from all of those proofs? Like, right. And, and, and the communities define their own standards, right? And the communities yeah. of communities that, you know, that, that define a, an, an overall net, you know, organization and then how those communities are going to interact. And that's again, where I think, you know, insurance has got a great opportunity because not only are we, you know, the, the financial backing for a lot of these things in place, but we also require, we need to create that, uh, economic communication, that transaction across regulators, roads, cars, other cars, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and trucks and commercial vehicles and stoplights and, you know, to the degree that we even have those anymore. Um, and then make sure all that system has integrity, right? Because you don't want that to be hacked if we can all of a sudden say, okay, every car on the highway, I want half of them to stop and half of them to floor it, right? That would be a problem. <laughs> So this is this is really great for um, you know I think the car analogy is fantastic I think the real estate analogy you gave me when we personally were talking was also fantastic with flood insurance. Um, mm -hmm. What does, that was our that's our first working group by the way flood. What other so we do have to kind of wrap up here soon but I I feel mm -hmm. like there's a lot of other industries you're not mentioning here. Uh, one of them we met at a, mm -hmm. a at a industry specifically around the financial sector and dealing with like Goldman Sachs was presenting there and Nasdaq mm -hmm. was there. So I'm I'm curious uh, what you see this technology doing for say uh, trading organizations or something like that. Like, is there is there potential mm -hmm. use there? Um, what is the what other use cases are there other than these these real estate and car uh, use cases, which people in the general audience would understand? But like, what what kind of like more enterprisey use cases are we seeing here? Um, well, enterprise use cases, again, it comes back to the community and the standard and enterprise is its own community. So, uh, as they, and they can define their own standard and nobody else has to, you know, ingest it and make, you know, has to worry about it to the degree that it looks like something else. Um, you know, for example, M&A opportunities are, are, will become plug and play um, that, you know, that sort of thing. If you, if you've got your, you know, the financial experience and the policy experience in a trusted data store, according to a trusted format and you get acquired by a larger organization, they already know everything they need to know about you and you are now integrated into the operations in a plug and play way. And we've got carriers that are adopting the platform right now, lamenting that they didn't do this a year ago, having just bought a very large organization and, and it's not plug and play. It's a year's worth of, of unraveling data. Um, so that's one application. When you talk about it to the, to the broader financial solution, that's where we start to get interesting. And again, because if that, financial data. We're doing insurance industry regulatory reporting data, but financial reporting data is the next thing that, you know, that we're looking at, making sure that carriers 
uh, have the the right liquidity, the right level of assets. You know, especially as those things change, like the market. All of a sudden, if the market goes down 20%, you know, the bag of money you had to insure the 100 houses isn't as big a bag as it was yesterday. Can you still insure in 100 houses? What do you What do you do? How much leeway do you need to have? So, and as that sorts of thing becomes becomes more trusted, both by regulators as a, as a framework, a trusted system to get that information on a more real-time basis, that allows the whole thing to move forward. Um, so as houses and cars and those physical assets are brought into a digital streamlined world, the opportunity for not only you know, digital currency, you know, um, be it Bitcoin or be it a, uh, you know, a, a digitized dollar, uh, has much more opportunity to be directly tied in real time to physical assets and make real change in the world. So, and, and it works both ways. One of the things uh, I talk about that's kind of the most exciting one, um, you know, is uh, because of the challenge we have in the internet is the, and the lack of trust that we seem to have across our population among the world. Um, insurance underwrites everything, right? Every, every product that's sold on the market, every plane that gets in the air, every, uh, every publisher of content. One of the things we can do very quickly when people talk about proof of insurance is one of the first use cases um, that insurance can provide. You know, if you, when you get pulled over, you have to show, your, show the cop your, uh, your proof of insurance that you're driving. Increasingly, they know that automatically behind different systems. But in other smaller contexts, having a proof of insurance is extremely valuable. For example, as you're scrolling through Facebook and you're seeing news stories, maybe one day there's a one pixel box around a news story and you hover over that and it says, oh, the, the publisher of this content is verified to, ha to, be, to have a million dollar or greater media publishing coverage with, a, with an A rated insurer. Oh, okay. Interesting. Scroll through that. As pretty soon I see more of those green boxes. That story, those things seem to be more and more trusted are more and more legitimate. The things that are not green boxes are less and less, look less and less legitimate, more and more like clickbait. One day I can have a little switch that says I only want to see stuff from, from verified publishers. That could be me in my basement as a, you know, as a technology blogger, you know, that I told State Farm, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a call if Apple decides to sue me, or the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, or the National Enquirer, a legitimate publisher, you can choose how much you want to trust the information, but they are, in fact, a legitimate business. As opposed to, you know, the, the thing my dad sends me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, a, that's, that's a great way to kind of wrap, wrap this up. And that, that rings true to what you said earlier. Like insurance kind of supports everything um, and, and finding better ways in which it works more efficiently is certainly an, a, a, a giant endeavor, but one worth doing. Where can, where can people go to learn more about both kind of uh, the business side of this as well as the, the technical underpinnings of how it works? So um, the first place to go to be aisonline.com. That's aaisonline.com slash openidl. Um, download some basic information there. Um, I mentioned the OpenIDL industry test drive. There's a link from that page there. That's a great place to go to get a... a a, a good overview uh, in a video uh, sense. By doing that, you'll sign up to email. We'll give you act, we'll give you more newsletters and more information. Um, we are a not-for-profit advisory organization, and we seek to you know follow the Hyperledger and the Linux model. Um, and that means our marketing budget is not huge, so all of our content is be, is uh, uh, is being generated rapidly. Um, and if you have any specific questions, I would encourage you to reach out to me directly. Um, my email is trumane at aisonline.com. Um, or again, if you sign up for that, uh, there's a room for comments. If you have any questions, um, please let me know. We'll be happy to reach out to you. All the presentations are available. Everything we're doing um, is, um, uh, is as open source as we can make it. We are seeking to be an open source project as part of the Hyperledger Linux communities um, as, our, as our organization matures. Um, so there's also a wiki, uh, openidl.atlassian.com. Net, if I got that right, basically Confluence Wiki um, with OpenIDL at the beginning. Um, and then you can see the membership agreements and, and uh, information on our flood working group, things like that. Um, right now, the membership is, uh, is organizations, um, but it's uh, very much wide open. Um, and we're looking to, uh, you know, once, once it becomes open source, then we'll be able to have a much broader individualized community 
Um, and we're looking for ways to do that and looking for lots of ways to participate. So looking forward to, to talking with a lot more people and a lot more uh, industries and perspectives. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more come out of this. Uh, I do think that what you're building is is really great. I'm glad you're open sourcing it. Um, I hope the patents won't be kind of a barrier for a lot of people for adoption. Not at all. No, they will be. You know, it's, they, they won't be. Um, you know, again, that's why we they're joint patents with the, with the AIS and Open, and we envision donating those patents to the open source organization as it matures. That's fantastic. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing some of this in the real world, especially as like, this will power the auto, uh, you know, the um, the automated cars that we we're dreaming about and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this all kind of like manifest in reality. And I'm glad to hear that you're getting so much traction. Um, it's really been great talking to you again, Truman. Um, Thanks for yeah. having me. Really appreciate yeah. the opportunity.